So um, sometimes when I'm doing talks, I tend to start talking too fast because I get a bit overexcited and slightly anxious. So if I'm talking too fast, please wave at me. And if you have trouble hearing me, you know, please tell me. So it's very excited to be invited here to do this uh, day with you all today. Um, partly because I've never actually been to this building before, which is a bit embarrassing to say, but I haven't. So I've been completely stunned by being here at the Manchester Buddhist Centre. It's great. And uh, it's lovely to see so many people here as well. Um, yeah. So I thought, uh, yeah, it was lovely to be asked by Diane Andy to come and talk about the mythic. It's not uh, an area that I get a lot of chance to talk about because when we do our mythic context retreats, they don't involve a lot of talking. They tend to be quite um, meditative retreats with a lot of reflection time in them. So, um, yeah, so thinking about this talk, it's been, I've been sort of rewriting it, basically. I was thinking it's a bit like... Um, taking on the spiritual dimension of, of our lives, taking on ourselves as spiritual beings, so to speak, is saying that there's something more, there's something more uh, to life than the ordinary, than ordinary human existence. Um, I was thinking for myself, I think I tended to think of my life in terms of eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow I'll probably fall off a cliff. <laughs> I used to do a rock, lot of rock climbing, so that could have actually literally been true. But yeah, definitely a sense that if I enjoyed myself, um, kind of to the full, that was the best I could make of life. <clears throat> but on the other hand, I definitely had, there were definitely stories that uh, I valued in my life as well. I was thinking of this idea of myth as being equivalent to having stories, stories that make life make sense. And when I was a kid, I used to love Doctor Who and uh, Star Trek very much. And I thought, uh, looking back on those stories that I liked, I thought they were stories of friendship. They were stories of um, people having... Um, also, oh, friendships that were created through adventure, through um, a sort of some kind of shared project. And um, I think when I got involved in rock climbing in my 20s, there was something of that quality of friendship there in those, fr uh, in those activities. The friendships that I made in those days are still very important to me now. And um, they're very significant. Um, and I think that quality of friendship is what made the rock climbing interesting. Climbing itself is a fairly tedious activity. <laughs> but more recently, I've noticed there's been different sorts of stories that have attracted me. And I was thinking of one in particular that caught my attention a while ago. And it was a, a story about um, a plane crash. It's one of those famous stories that you hear. Uh, a plane crashes in the Andes somewhere, and uh, it's assumed that it's got lost. I don't know if this story is completely true or whether I've made some of it up. But um, one of the, the guys who manages to escape you know, is a kind of only living person um, finds himself high up in the mountains with a lot of snow around and, uh, and thinks he's just going to die so he's kind of ready to curl up and, and die quietly in the cold um, but then he realises that his wife won't get the insurance money if his body isn't found There's some kind of clause in his insurance policy so he decides that he has to try and get his body down low enough for it to be discovered by the um, rescue teams and uh, he sort of crawls or whatever, makes his way out of the difficult situation. And he actually survived to tell the tale afterwards. So, but it was as if he, it was his, um, for himself, he wouldn't have done it. But because it was for somebody he loved and cared about, he actually made the effort. And I think it was something about that story that started to catch my imagination. That's a point, I think, in our spiritual lives where we can think, uh, well, actually, I'm doing OK. My life's quite comfortable now. And um, it can become a sort of well, you know, I don't need to make much effort anymore. But then I start to realise that actually um, my spiritual life, it makes a difference to my friendships. It makes a difference <coughs> to the people who I know. And if I can take that more deeply, I can be a better friend. 
So this is kind of a shift in my, the way that I was practicing my spiritual life, my, um, my practice as a Buddhist, um, yeah, changed. I was thinking of it as a bit like I was willing to give up a more me-centred version of the Dharma. And uh, I think that's, this, this particular story encapsulates that. So what are myths? <laughs> myths or stories um, are the kind of, in a way, they're the story that gives meaning and purpose to our lives. They're ways of understanding our life, ways of understanding what it means to be a human being. And myths, in a way, are what motivates us. Quite often we think that we're motivated by reasons, by our rational mind sort of thinking things through. But actually, in a way, the thing that really gets you going, the thing that actually keeps you on track, is, is more of a story, a kind of heart sense of what's important, what's significant. So our personal sense of that may not be very clear. It may even just be a sense of longing. And I think for myself, when I was first um, coming on, going for refuge retreats at Tirat and Loka, I noticed this sense of longing quite poignantly. Actually, it's quite painful sometimes. It wasn't very clear to me what it was about, um, but a definite sense of wanting something bigger. Um, there's sort of, I suppose in a way, there's a sort of big questions for our lives, like why am I here and what's the meaning of life? What's important in my life in the face of, of my death, basically? Sort of shortness of human life. So we need an imaginal dimension. We need this dimension of story, of myth, of archetype in our life in order for the li our lives not to be, well, ultimately a bit meaningless. So this word shraddha that I'm sure you've come across is often translated as faith, but it can also be translated as confidence, having a certain kind of confidence in our lives. And this, uh, this kind of confidence, spiritual confidence, has three aspects apparently. It's both, it's both rational, emotional and also volitional. So it's got these kind of three aspects of human existence all tied up in this idea of, of confidence or faith in our spiritual lives. And unless it has all three, all three of these aspects, the rational, the imaginal or emotional and the volitional, unless it has all those three aspects, it won't really satisfy us, it won't actually fulfil our deepest needs. So you can't leave out any of those three sides. And I was thinking of this idea of a personal myth, a personal story, as being tapping into our emotional, our intuitive sense of what our lives are about. I think, I'm thinking of it as a bit like um, being able to see with the heart, being able to think with your heart rather than just your head. And myths have themes, don't they? They have themes of journeys, return journeys maybe, or journeys into the unknown. They might have a theme of exile, they might have themes of magical animals, uh, of tasks imposed on us without clear explanations. And they ha often have a resolution without, an ha without a happy ending. I think this is the quality of, uh, uh, of, of the sort of more traditional myths of society. They don't often have a very clear happy ending, whereas the um, many sort of modern myths, kind of the, the myths you see enacted in films, will have a, a nice ha sort of happy ending where everybody gets off with everybody else and the bad guy dies and you know, it's all sort of fixed and finished. The, the sort of more traditional myths of, of humanity don't actually have a very clear ending in that way. Yeah, <clears throat> so, um, I heard uh, a friend of mine giving a talk about the mythic uh, Chandra Prabha, who I work with at Tiratna Loka, and she said she felt that there was a point in her life where she had to give up on stories and, uh, and decided that life was about dealing with disappointment. 
life, her life was about dealing with disappointment, which I thought was quite a painful image in a way. And uh, that wasn't my experience, but I thought I'd, I'd say it because obviously uh, it was her experience and it might be other people's as well. That sense that you have to give up on the stories, the uh, sort of um, higher aspirations that we have and deal with disappointment. I think for myself, I ended up as an adult taking these kind of sense of stories to quite a secret place in my life. I thought that uh, other people probably thought I was a bit of an idiot or something, so I'd, uh, I'd keep those, that sort of part of myself a bit secret, a bit personal, a bit inward, inner. Um, I think they, yeah, I thought they weren't shareable. I thought other people wouldn't respond to the same things as me and I was probably a bit silly to have them, but I was uh, content to keep them in a bit of a, a sort of private space. And in a way, coming across the Dharma, uh, particularly coming across the Dharma as we practice it here in Chiratna, uh, was a sort of rediscovery of this world. It was allowing me to open up the doors to this world and let it be seen by other people, and kind of letting myself take it more seriously as well. I was thinking of it a bit as like um, a way of living a life that was more magical. Um, and like more than just wanting to be happy, having a sense of, uh, for more of a deeper engagement with my life more fully engaged with life. And actually, uh, I suppose ongoingly, I found this completely amazing. And uh, to be able to sort of share this idea of uh, a mythic quality to life more deeply with a lot of people. So there's a sense in which myth and reason have to be complementary. We can't leave our brains by the door when we come into the Buddhist center. We have to engage our minds as well as our hearts. But myth can be used to help deal with the human predicament, with what it means to be a human being. They're not another world, they're not a nice little place that you drift off to in a cosy daydream. They're actually part of the real world, really here and now. Um, it's, uh, it's sort of as if um, the sort of ordinary world is, is kind of here around me, but there's a sort of the myths and the stories kind of shine through into the, into the um, place that we are. They kind of inform what we're doing in our ordinary lives they kind of give us a sense of why we're doing what we're doing. So it makes our lives richer and stronger and kind of more enduring. There's something kind of uh, more um, that you can stand on, I think, having this quality of the imaginal part of our lives. I was thinking about myself working in the Wild Cherry restaurant, which Diane Angie mentioned, was a rather small and very busy little restaurant. And uh, it could be pretty hot and sticky in that kitchen with five of us washing around, trying to get the food organized and do all the washing up and serve the customers. So in some ways it was a very, very ordinary job. Um, I had previous to that, I had been uh, a botanical illustrator, which is a very unordinary job. There weren't very many of us around. I worked at Kew Gardens and drew plants all day, very, very quietly in a little corner, <laughs> drawing my plants. And, uh, <laughs> and then I moved from that to this uh, very, very ordinary job, working in a restaurant, doing a lot of washing up cleaning dirty plates and bustling around. But there was a sense of, uh, I think because I was working in a team with other Buddhists, there's a sense of my kind of, my secret inner life becoming part of this um, bustling team world that I became, well, but that I was engaged with. Um, I was thinking of it as a bit like, well, my secret world became visible, became part of my visible experience, my outer experience. But at the same time, that outer experience, the very ordinary job that I was doing, became magical. There's this sort of like, um, interpenetration kind of quality of the two coming together. The ordinary world became special. 
in fact at one point I was thinking, I was thinking of it as a bit like the TARDIS, I thought well at Kew Gardens I met people from all over the world who were studying plants coming from different places and, and it was a big place and I thought going to a little tiny restaurant in East London serving vegetarian food was going to be uh, you know, a contraction of my world but it felt the opposite, it felt like stepping into that kitchen was like stepping into the TARDIS or something much bigger than uh, I was expecting somehow. So it's not as if this imaginal world, this mythic world, is the transcendental, but it somehow gives us access to values, access to values and significance that point in the same direction as the transcendental. So a sense of a personal myth gives us something to steer by. It impels us to act and it kind of leaves you uncomfortable when you're not acting in accordance with it. So there's a, it has a, something quite objective about this mythic world, this, this sort of story part of ourselves. And my own themes, like I say, in, um, well, the Doctor Who and the Star Trek images, uh, my own themes have been friendship, which of course then turned out to be part of my name later on. Learning how to be more of a friend has been kind of an essential part of my practice as a Buddhist. And the other um, part of my own personal myth, I think, has been the myth of the artist. So like I said, I spent a lot of time drawing plants that wasn't actually working as an artist, it was more graphics, but um, I think uh, I used to find the visual arts very, very important to me and I'd spend quite a lot of time um, checking out other people's work. And I think the myth of the artist for me was something about how to be authentic, how to have an authentic truth in my life and uh, how to communicate something of that authentic truth to other people. And I think, um, in a way, my life now at Tiwatanaloka has this quality of trying to be more authentic in my connections with people, building friendships and communicating from my experience as authentically as I can. So I think that there's a definite sense, as my Buddhist practice has taken me, taken me deeper, of these kind of myths and stories kind of coming to life, really, and, uh, and being embodied in what I'm doing, which I find incredibly satisfying and very, very enjoyable, basically. So I thought I'd say a little bit about, um, well I've, I've been saying a bit about myth in general, but I thought I'd say a little bit about what I think of as being false myths or pseudo-myths even, the kind of some of the myths that we find around us in the modern world. So a lot of the myths of the, of the we, that we see around us in, uh, in our life, uh, everyday lives, are the myths of individualism, the myths of consumerism and the myths of, and the myths of romantic love. So they're, in a way, these, um, these false myths, they're all myths of appropriation. They're stories of having the thing that's going to make my life feel good. We appropriate part of the world and that makes me feel like my life is okay. Um, adverts, advertising tells us these myths very, very strongly in very attractive colours and images. They catch our imagination very easily. I was thinking, uh, I saw recently an advert for a, a type of car that was being sold by James Bond, basically. They had him sort of standing there beside this car, which is actually not a terribly attractive car, to be honest. But anyway, he's obviously getting a lot of money to stand beside it and get the photograph. <coughs> so the name of the car was, uh, was Range Rover, I think. So it had, okay, even the name of the car it suggests a myth, doesn't it? Range and Rover suggests something sort of a bit exciting, doesn't it? Uh, a bit wild. It suggests that um, if you buy this car, you will become more wild and more dangerous. Something, you know, there's James Bond standing there looking wild and dangerous in this, this car. So, you know, in a way we can, we can find ourselves attracted by those images, can't we? But at the same time, your rational mind kicks in and will say, actually, you know, I'll get a big car like that, I'm going to have bigger bills, actually. Um, <clears throat> which 
means I'll have to work harder, which means my life will be less wild and less dangerous because <laughs> I have to be pinned down to all these <laughs> payments. But we do, I mean, it can be quite easy to find ourselves sort of attracted by those images. And we find ourselves, if we, um, well, I suppose that myth of consumerism is quite big in our life at the moment. We can find ourselves defining, defining how I think of myself in terms of things that I own. Um, and that might not be just my clothes or my car. It might include, um, uh, well, our holidays that we go on, the views that I hold to um, the people that I know even. And... Um, yeah, that's kind of sense that I can appropriate something that makes my life look important. I was thinking that this sort of false myth, this kind of myth of consumerism and the individual as a, as a consumer, um, actually suggests that as a, as a kind of naked human being, I am worthless. If I don't own those things, I'm worthless. So that's the kind of subtext, this myth of consumerism, which is actually quite a painful subtext if you think about it. Um, so it's quite, um, it's quite harsh, quite painful. So in a way, the true myths, the myths that can lead us forward into the spiritual life, are inherently open-ended. Um, they're not about having things or people to make me f good about myself. They're not about having stuff, but about being, um, being more of a human being, more fully human. So we're moving from this idea of having to uh, a kind of more open-ended idea of being, what we can be, what qualities we express, and who we can be more fundamentally in ourselves. But quite often when we're starting off our spiritual life, we do have this desire to have things. And we can tend to appropriate our spiritual practice as well. We can appropriate the Dharma or our spiritual friendships even. We can want our practice to give us something, give me really good friends, a, a safe, um, sort of happy kind of sense of security. Uh, we want to sort of settle down somehow. <clears throat> we can use, uh, in this way, the, the Dharma can be interpreted a bit literally somehow as, as something that I can own. Um, I was thinking of it when I was um, earlier on, I suppose, I used to think that if I get enlightened, uh, people will really, really like me, and that'll be great. You know, it's a bit like I'll be rich, famous and adored, because I'll you know, have this little halo somewhere, everyone will be able to see, sit there looking enlightened. However, unfortunately, you know, I mean, in a way, consumerism would be fine if it actually worked, wouldn't it? Unfortunately, it doesn't actually work because the lakshanas are true. Um, these goals are simply not possible to achieve in that way. <coughs> we will be let down by the things that we own. Uh, we will be betrayed uh, if we try and uh, appropriate the spiritual life. So until we can start to look for those deeper stories of, of in our lives, they, uh, we won't actually be satisfied by the other stories, the false myths. So we need to look for deeper stories, the stories that include our own mortality, include our own aloneness, fundamental aloneness. And these change the way that we relate to people, these sort of more truer stories. We can, if we can relate from this sense of our own mortality, from the sense of our own aloneness, we'll, uh, we'll be able to relate more, sort of more spontaneously and more authentically. Um, so instead of using other people to fulfil needs for security, we can find ourselves uh, actually giving to our connections with people. There's a whole bunch of guys walking past there looking through the door. I find it slightly off-putting. <laughs> <laughs> Drink of water. Mm. Okay. Yeah, so another aspect of, um, of a true myth rather than a false myth is that the true myth is able to meet the shadow, meet the shadow side of our lives. 
the false myths tend to try and just focus on the nice things and uh, we can end up with this sort of split between trying to be good and the sort of bad sides of life, the unpleasant or painful sides of our lives that we try and um, well, split off or uh, avoid somehow. And um, yeah, as the mythic dimension of life has been devalued by advertising and by fantasy, fantasy films, we've kind of lost this idea that we can incorporate the shadow side of our life. We've ended up with a deep split. <laughs> and that could be the dustbin van going past in the background there. <laughs> That's a shadow machine. That's a shadow machine, exactly, yeah. So in a, in a way the response to this can be a sort of tendency to push the shadow away, to demonise it and uh, sort of things like witch hunts can be part of this pattern. And in modern life we can see how journalism um, in newspapers can tend to sort of portray life in very much in terms of good and bad and um, seeing bad people as um, very strongly sort of ostracising I suppose or, or pushing away that kind of bad uh, side of life. So a true myth should be able to meet the shadow, should actually be able to meet these darker sides of experience. There's a sense in which a true myth is able to go down into the underworld and salvage the parts of ourselves that have been split off, the parts of ourselves that we've, have we been told that we shouldn't accept. I think particularly as women, we're often told that we shouldn't be angry, we shouldn't have some of the negative emotions like jealousy or anger. And uh, we can find it quite hard to even be aware of those feelings sometimes. Yeah, I was thinking of the Lord of the Rings actually. It's like uh, Frodo has to actually make a connection with Gollum, the bad guy who's out to kill him. He has to make a, a deeper connection with Gollum, he has to communicate with Gollum in order to be able to take his, his search, his kind of quest to its conclusion. has to find out who he is and what motivates him. So in a way we have to do that with our shadow side as well. Yeah, the Bodhisattva vow is not to forsake any living being. Um, apparently that's the aspirant Bodhisattva vow. The, the full-on Bodhisattva vow would be to uh, save all sentient beings by gaining insight myself. <laughs> but I like this idea of the aspirant vow being to not forsake any being, any single being that I'm with. And it seems, in a way, this, this idea brings the, the Bodhisattva vow a bit closer to home. But it definitely brings to me this idea of, of the shadow side. Because quite often the people that I find difficult will be the people who, for some reason, remind me of a part of myself that I don't like. I mean, I know this is a bit of a cliche of modern psychology, but I find it quite um, personally... Um, oh, uh, what's the word? Uh, personally quite painful, I suppose, when I, I meet that in myself. The parts, oh, sorry, I'm just touching that thing. That doesn't help, does it? Um, I meet the parts of myself that I don't like and um, project them into other people and then find it difficult to think of those people in positive ways. I was thinking uh, at one point I noticed that there are certain people who would actually fall off the end of my meta practice. It's like, you know, there's a sort of the good friend stage and then there's a fourth stage with a difficult person and then there was people who I didn't even quite believe should be in the fourth stage. <laughs> um, you know, people like Mrs Thatcher and stuff. So, yeah, so I have to ask myself, oh, why are those people difficult to me? Why do I find that difficult? And in what way are those people part of my shadow? In what way are they part of myself? So I'm moving on now to say a little bit about the myth of the spiritual life. It's a bit as if, uh, it's a kind of image, I suppose, isn't it, that there's another world that exists parallel to our own, another level to our own lives. Um... 
somebody expressed this as being a bit like we're living in the centre of a double mandala. We're at the centre of a kind of mandala of our ordinary lives with all our friends and family and people we know, people we work with, all our ordinary activities. But at the same time, there's another mandala that we're the centre of, that we're part of, which is our spiritual mandala. Brought this um, picture to put on the shrine, in a way that uh, begins to sort of suggest what we're talking about here. It's uh, the photographs of order members, and actually there's some other photographs in there as well, but they've been made up into a sort of collage to suggest the uh, thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara, made up of photographs of actual people. This sort of sense of, um, yeah, something bigger than ourselves, a myth kind of coming through. So we could feel a bit shy about this. I mean, I was talking about my own life in terms of having to keep that part of myself a bit secret. But uh, as when you sort of tell your friend, well, I'm a Buddhist, tell your non-Buddhist friend that you're a Buddhist, there's a sense in which you're stepping into um, this quality of having a, a sort of bigger side to my life. <coughs> it's slightly like I'm saying that I'm a superhero or something. I feel a bit embarrassed and think, oh gosh, they're going to think um, she fancies herself. But actually, well, it's really, really important that we're able to take this side of our lives seriously. It's a bit like taking ourselves seriously, in fact. Um, and it's kind of quite hard in our culture of cynicism when it's cool to be bored. So we have to make a bit of a step sometimes, I think, to take that side of our lives seriously and to let it be seen by other people. Um, yeah. It's a bit as if we have to start seeing ourselves as the hero of our story. Uh, rather than one of the kind of side characters. And this changes our relationship to the world, it actually changes your relationship to your friends, to your family, to everybody. We start to see ourselves as having a responsibility to the world in this way, and we experience ourselves as more potent. Uh, in a way, this, this whole image is saying that I have an effect on the world, uh, my life has an effect, I make a difference. When I was first um, and I first became an order member. I joined a chapter with one of the women who was doing a lot of the teaching at the LBC, and um, she was doing a lot of the newcomers' classes. And sometimes the newcomers' class might be, you know, 60, 70 people. And she said when she put on her queso and walked into the reception room where everyone was gathering before the class started, she'd feel quite anxious. She said putting on the queso made her suddenly feel quite visible and a bit like people might, um, well, I suppose, sort of look at her basically and, and wonder who she was, what she was doing, and. Uh, and she said she was puzzling about it. Does actually does the queso mean that um, well people sort of polarise with you very quickly before they've even got to know you, and uh, and sort of think oh she's one of those Buddhists or something. And she was thinking well maybe it'd be better if she didn't wear her queso when she first went in and started to talk to strangers, people who had just dropped in. Uh, and then she was thinking about it and she realised that it was important to wear her queso even though it felt a bit. Um, like it made her a bit, feel a bit vulnerable or a bit visible. But she said what, it, what she realised was that it was giving courage. It was actually saying, well, I take my spiritual life strongly enough to wear this slightly odd item. And, uh, and in a way that offers other people the opportunity to also take their lives more seriously, to also take that spiritual part of their lives more seriously. So it's, uh, it's kind of giving courage in that way. By taking ourselves more seriously, we allow other people to do the same. You can kind of feel the opposite happening, can't you? If, you, uh, if you're with somebody who tends to um, denigrate themselves or laugh at themselves a lot, it's harder to take yourself more seriously. It's a bit as if they're going to laugh at everybody. So it can feel easier to stay with the ordinary level, the ordinary mantle of our lives. 
and we may need to encourage ourselves and remind ourselves of the sort of, uh, of the spiritual dimension of our lives, of this kind of mythic quality. It's important to stay in touch with that quality in our lives, with our capacities, with our, um, with our sense of purpose, I suppose, in life. We need to stay loyal to this. We need to stay loyal to our own potential in the world. And I was thinking, in a way, the practice of having a sadhana uh, is a bit... Uh, like this. Like every day I bring to mind my connection with Padmasambhava and there's a quality there of oh, Padmasambhava is just so amazing. I sort of think, well I feel a bit um, well, small in comparison I suppose, but on the other hand there's a, a sense in which that kind of gives me a, um, oh, re reconnects me with what I'm trying to do with my life, with the world, my, myself and the world. I came across this uh, idea when I was in um, when I was with a bunch of Tibetan Buddhists, Gampo Abbey, that uh, there's a quality of sort of doing a sort of sadhana practice, a sort of visualization practice of every moment of our lives. We're visualizing ourselves as me. <laughs> I'm going around saying, me, 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 me. I'm sort of I'm putting on a kind of me-shaped persona all the time. And when I practice uh, a visualization of say Padmasambhava, I'm kind of trying to change that me-shaped persona that I'm always projecting into a more Padmasambhava-shaped persona. And, uh, and this, so in a way it's not like I'm trying to put on something completely new, it's, well it's completely new, but it's, um, it's as if we're doing it all the time, but we're doing a small version and we need to try and work, work out what is our big version of ourselves. So our ultimate ideal might be enlightenment itself, might be uh, Buddhahood. But in a way we need to also have a sense of a cl something closer to home, um, something that motivates us to practice with the next step, so to speak, as we go along in our lives. And this process is a process of finding the emotional equivalence of our rational understanding of our practice of Buddhism. So we have an intellectual understanding of what Buddhism is about, but we need to emotionally engage with that, we need to find emotional equivalence. And I was thinking um, this idea of friendship as being what drives me or what sort of moves me in the spiritual life is in a way uh, the emotional equivalent of no self, of non-clinging to self. You say when you talk about emptiness or shunyata, well, it's a very, it sounds quite abstract, it sounds like quite high ideal and, uh, and it can also sound a bit chilly actually, a bit cold and a bit um, empty. <laughs> so to speak, but we need, if we look at it in terms of being more of a friend, it becomes attractive and interesting and, uh, well, frankly, something that I can think of myself as spending the rest of my life doing. So in the Pali Canon, the Buddha speaks of the spiritual life in a number of different ways. He talks about it as a noble quest, doesn't he, which you can see as being a bit like King Arthur and um, the quest for the Holy Grail. It's a noble quest. There's a path um, or a journey. The Buddha also talks about removing an arrow that's lodged deep in the heart that keeps us running around. Uh, he talks about the metta bhavna as loving in the way that a mother would love her only child. So you get this quality of different sort of images that the Buddha's brought in to um, kind of encourage or, or allow us to connect with the spiritual life at this emotional level, this level of stories. He uses quite ordinary images to fire up our imagination and um, get us going. And we can make use of these as they grab us. So the story of the Bodhisattva, which is the kind of image we've got on the shrine there, is, uh, is in a way, it's the story of life, human life at its 
um, at its best, at its largest in a way, uh, a life that's completely free of reactivity, uh, a life that's beyond the need to own or have anything, to build an identity, to build this sort of me. And um, Banshee talks about it very strongly in terms of our collective practice, our practice as a Sangha. That's what the sort of significance of this image of having photographs of a lot of different people, a lot of different order members, making, going together to make up the myth of, of the Bodhisattva, the myth of Avalokiteshvara, reaching out to the world with thousand arms, each arm, each hand holding a different implement, uh, each hand holding out uh, friendship really to the world. Yeah. So at this point, our myth becomes something that links us with other people. It stops being a, a personal, private myth. It becomes something that actively connects us together as a Sangha. Yeah. I think there's something very, very magic about this myth. Thinking about all of us here today, coming together to um, practice together and um, yeah, benefit each other, benefit ourselves, and then go out into the world to benefit our friends and families. So in order to have this sense of our personal myth, of personal connection with our myths and stories, we need to have confidence. We need to have a confidence in our own sense of personal meaning. A sense that there's a gestalt to your life, there's a kind of pattern to your life that uh, drives it, a kind of hidden hole in your life, a hidden sense of truth outside the ordinary sort of space and time constraints. So in order to find your own myth, I'm suggesting that you kind of notice the stories that attract you, um, aspects of characters and people that you find um, move you personally. You might want to ask yourself things like, well, where do I feel potent in my life? Where do I find that quality of um, well, knowing that I make a difference? And where do we limit ourselves in our lives? Where do we hold ourselves back? Where could we actually be bigger in our lives? In a way, this is um, an aspect of mindfulness practice, actually. Quite often we think of mindfulness as a bit of a cold, clinical, precise, OK, now I'm doing this, or now it feels like that. Um, but actually, mindfulness has this um, dimension of significance, of value as well. If we can become aware of significance um, as actually inherent in our experience, uh, we start to sort of see our lives more fully. Life is inherently significant, it has inherent value. Every object, every event, every person is a gateway to ultimate truth, is a gateway to the ultimate meaning of life. So this mythic dimension, as I've been saying, it does have an effect. Our actions, our everyday lives, our decisions that we take in our lives are driven by a sense of meaning and significance. And uh, that continues to be true, even if it's these false myths I was talking about earlier, the false myths of having rather than being, even the terrible myth of there being no, no meaning at all, which is in itself also a myth, a story about life, the idea that there's no meaning to it at all. And we can think that these stories are just our imagination and therefore somehow don't count. Um, but it's important to see that all these areas of our consciousness, of our lives, actually do count, they do have an effect. And that includes our dreams, our imagination, stories, and our waking reality. They all kind of interconnect and um, affect each other. So we need to actually start to deliberately turn ourselves toward the true myths of life, of our lives. Find these true myths and actually turn toward them. Um, 
know, the stories of what we can become, stories of our values rather than of what we own or have. And this kind of sense of our values is not something that we can get from anybody else, okay? We have to find it as a, a sort of personal truth in our own hearts. Um, it's a way in which this sense of value is in inherently authentic. You kind of, uh, you sort of know yourself if it's something that somebody else is telling you that you ought to find important and it, it doesn't really you know, mean anything to you. We can pretend, we can go along with values that other people tell us are important, but uh, a heart can quite quickly say, well, actually, that's not my value. That's not what I'm um, moved by. There's a sense, uh, I think, for some of us that we might have learnt to distrust or give up on our stories. So it might be that we have to um, bring a lot of kindness to that sense and, and re-find, re-encourage ourselves, re-educate ourselves almost to discover those stories again. So on our spiritual life, we start to see the world differently as we practice. I'm sure we've all noticed that. <coughs> we see the world more clearly and we start to see the significance or magic of our world. <laughs> yeah, as, while I was writing this, I was thinking of us um, arriving together on this on this day. It's interesting. I was, you know, I was writing this talk a day or so back and um, trying to imagine. It. And actually, sort of the imagination of sitting here in this room is completely different from the actual experience. <laughs> but here we are. We've all arrived. We've all made the effort to get here from our different lives on a Saturday morning. It's quite something to decide to come and listen to a talk and do a workshop on a Saturday when you could be lying in. Um, but we've decided to do that. We've made, we've created a Sangha together. We're creating the magic of Sangha. And this ritual space that we are inhabiting, this um, shrine room space where we've taken our shoes off in order to enter the door. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? The little, the little um, rituals that go to make up a shrine room, simply the fact that we've taken our shoes off suggests that we're leaving the outside world slightly um, at the door in order to come into a different space. We maybe we bow to the Buddha as we come in and uh, there's a sense in which we sort of acknowledging our higher ideals by building a shrine, by putting flowers on it. Now these um, quite simple rituals uh, that we put into our life as spiritual practitioners in order to remind ourselves of this mythic quality to our life, of the true refuges. So having a sense of our own personal myth uh, gives us courage, I think. It gives us courage not to just go through the motions of life, um, to actually find something more wholehearted about uh, the way that we're experiencing our existence. And it gives us the courage to actually start to take on, um, well, uh, written down here, being prepared to do whatever it takes. I was thinking, is there a better way of putting that? Um, I suppose for myself that feels like what wholeheartedness means. It means that... Uh, I want to do whatever it takes. I kind of, uh, because I have this sort of sense of my life being about friendships, I know that, well, friendships are not always easy. They can involve difficult communication sometimes. They can involve feeling quite, um, well, I can feel quite humiliated sometimes when I mess up with my friends. But it's, uh, but yet at the same time, I know that I do want to do what it takes because my sense of that value is quite strong and it feels quite clear <coughs> that that is what I'm doing with my life. So I'm willing to go through the tricky bits in order to, um, yeah, to, to make things more true. The other thing I've got down here is that, uh, well, taking on this kind of quality of a myth of our lives, it means, um, or it might mean being uh, not afraid to break the rules, not afraid to um, 
break the rules and, uh, and go it alone if we realise that that's what we need to do. Somebody uh, was saying that um, well, we might, if we're afraid to break the rules, we might think that all hell might break loose. Apparently Banshee said, if we break the rules, will all hell break loose? Well, it might. And maybe that's what it takes. Maybe that's what, it's, what, it, what it is needed, I suppose, to actually make that shift. So there's something of uh, a bit heroic in the, a kind of, without a capital H, I suppose, um, quality to doing this. So eventually, uh, finally, um, what I want to say here really is that we are attracted to following the, the path of the Buddha, the Buddhist path, because it holds value and meaning for us. We've all found that or we wouldn't be here today, we wouldn't have asked for ordination. And we need to uh, root this quality of value and meaning in a confidence in our own capacity, our own capacity to resonate with stories, with myths, with symbols and with archetypes. Um, in a way, these have st sort of stood guard over the truth of human existence throughout millennia. And they're still true for us today. We're still um, living in this kind of human existence that needs myth, it needs story to allow us to grow and to fulfil our true potential. So I thought I'd finish by uh, reading a, a poem by Banti. It's called Secret Wings. We cry that we are weak, although we will not stir our secret wings. The world is dark because we are blind to the starriness of things. We pluck our rainbow-tinted plumes and with their heaven-born beauty try to fledge nocturnal shafts and then complain, alas, we cannot fly. We mutter, all is dust, or else with mocking eyes accost the wise. Show us the sun which shines behind the, beyond the veil, and then we close our eyes. To powers above and powers beneath in quest of truth, men sue for aid, who stand athwart the light and fear the shadow that themselves have made. O oh, cry no more that you are weak, but stir and spread your secret wings, and say the world is bright because we glimpse the starriness of things. Soar with your rainbow plumes and reach that near far land where all are one, where beauty's face is a unveiled and every star shall be a sun. <laughs>